the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind is engineering and producing today's program. Daniel Henderson will be my guest. He's the author of Transforming Presence, How the Holy Spirit Changes Everything from the Inside Out. He'll be joining us later this hour. We're also going to be giving away our second family four-pack of tickets to the Oregon State Fair. So more details on that in the 5 o'clock Hour. We did have an update today, uh, earlier in the day, regarding Pastor uh, Andrew Craig Brunson, the 50-year-old American pastor who served in Turkey for some 20 years. The story came out of Ankara, Turkey. A Turkish court rejected an appeal today to end the house arrest of the American pastor, who's at the center of an escalating diplomatic row between uh, NATO allies, the United States, and Turkey. Uh, Turkey state-run news reported earlier today the court in Izmir also refused to lift a travel ban that prevents Pastor Craig, or Pastor Brunson, uh, from leaving Turkey, ruling there was no change in the strong criminal suspicion against the pastor, uh, again, according to their local news agency. Well, the pastor, uh, Brunson, who's lived in Turkey for more than two decades, was arrested in December of 2016 on espionage and terror-related charges. He's been jailed until he was released to home detention on the 25th of July. The evangelical Christian pastor denies any wrongdoing. He faces a prison sentence of up to 35 years if he's convicted on both counts at the end of his ongoing trial. And ongoing is the right word because it has the potential to go on and on and on. He's already been detained for two years. President Donald Trump uh, demanded his release and announced possible sanctions last week against Turkey, a crucial NATO ally for its treatment of him. The Turkish government refused to back down and call the United States to respect Turkey's judicial process. It is unacceptable for the United States to use threatening language against Turkey over a continuing judicial case. A presidential spokesman, Ibrahim Kalin, said after a cabinet meeting, Turkey will never give in on uh, give up rather on its principled stance. Well, he reiterated that Turkey would seek international arbitration if the United States refused to deliver F-35 fighter jets in retaliation. There's an expectation, a commitment has been made, and the, the concern is that the president would use uh, those uh, jets as leverage uh, for the release of Pastor Brunson. As for uh, Pastor Brunson's attorney who filed the request the court rejected, uh, he wasn't available for comment at this time, but uh, Pastor Brunson is... Uh, Originally from Black Mountain, North Carolina, he led the Izmir Resurrection Church in Turkey for a number of years. He was detained in the aftermath of a failed coup in 2016 for allegedly supporting outlawed Kurdish rebels and the network led by U.S.-based Muslim cleric uh, Fatullah Gulen. Turkey blames uh, that cleric for the unrest that took place in 2016, but the cleric denies involvement in the coup attempt altogether. The next hearing for Pastor Brunson is scheduled for October the 12th, keeping in mind today is July the 31st. Uh, for Fortunately, oh, thank the Lord, that's a better way of putting it, he will be detained from his home. He is uh, under house arrest, so he is, at least is not confined to that prison, but he is confined to his home, and he cannot yet be reunited with his family, nor is he free to return to his home here in the United States. It's been decided that he can no longer serve in a ministerial uh, capacity there, given recent events. So that's the latest on Pastor Brunson, uh, Brunson. Uh, that was made uh, known just uh, earlier today. Some of the developing stories, jury selection, in the federal
federal bank and tax fraud trial of former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort uh, began uh, in Virginia today, and the trial represents a major test for special counsel Robert Mueller's ongoing investigation. Although none of the crimes for which uh, Mr. Manafort is being tried are related to the Trump campaign. In fact, jurors are forbidden uh, to make reference to uh, or make any statements using the words Trump, collusion, campaign, any of it. Also, Rudy Giuliani, speaking to Sean Hannity on Fox News, told Trump's legal team, rather said that Trump's legal team is leaning toward ignoring Mueller's questions, saying they don't believe prosecutors have a legitimate investigation. President Trump offered today to meet Iranian President Rouhani with, uh, I should say on Monday, to meet with uh, President Rouhani with no preconditions. We've since heard from uh, the Iranian president who said he is not interested. A Northern California wildfire is now one of the state's uh, most destructive as authorities also battle other blazes across the region. And CBS has chosen not to take immediate action against CEO Les Moonves uh, amid sexual harassment allegations after a, a board meeting on Monday and is seeking outside counsel to conduct an independent investigation. Well, a Mercedes-Benz and multiple Range Rovers pulled up uh, outside the trial of uh, Mr. Manafort, a $3 million brownstone in Brooklyn bought with cash. Those lavish expenditures are now evidence in the high-stakes bank and tax fraud trial of the former Trump campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, which is set to begin and did earlier today in the U.S. District Court of the Eastern District of Virginia. The trial is the first arising from special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia probe, although it has nothing to do with collusion. It represents a major test, not just for Manafort, who faces decades in prison on bank and tax fraud charges if convicted, but also for Mueller, whose ongoing probe into Russian meddling in the 2016 presidential election could lose credibility if jurors ultimately acquit Manafort. I don't see that connection because the charges are not related to collusion. Um, And as one um, observer uh, suggested, the interest in Paul Manafort really goes to um, the uh, hope that he would turn on President Trump for his service as uh, a very brief uh, time as his campaign manager. President Trump repeatedly has uh, called the Mueller probe a witch hunt, and his attorney, Rudy Giuliani, has suggested the investigation is rigged. Neither the Virginia trial nor Manafort's separate upcoming trial in D.C. directly relates to any alleged collusion between Trump officials and the Russian government or purported Russian disinformation campaigns, a fact that led to a tense courtroom showdown just months ago. And President Trump's legal team is becoming more and more convinced it should ignore questions by special counsel Robert Mueller, Trump's attorney Rudy Giuliani, on Monday saying it's highly unlikely they will meet again with prosecutors. Given the revelations of the last three or four weeks, we've gone further away from the idea of answering any questions from them, Giuliani told Sean Hannity. We don't think they have a legitimate investigation. Giuliani's comments underscore the newly combative tenor of Trump's campaign toward Mueller as Manafort's trial approached and has now officially begun, at least one of the two. The former New York City mayor, who previously claimed Mueller's team uh, may have been trying to frame Trump, also laughed off a New York Times report that prosecutors were looking at Trump's tweets to build an obstruction of justice case against the president, which is actually quite laughable. Uh, President Trump said Monday that he would be willing to meet with the Iranian president Hassan Rouhani with no preconditions on the heels of a fiery exchange of threats earlier this month. Similar to what happened with North Korea, I would certainly, the president said, meet with Iran if they wanted to meet. I don't know if they're ready uh, uh, yet, Trump said, when asked at a White House press conference about a possible meeting with Rouhani. Trump said he would set no preconditions and if they want to meet, I'll meet anytime they want. The president already has held summits with Russian President Vladimir Putin and North Korea's Kim Jong-un. And as I mentioned, it's already been uh, made clear that Rouhani is not interested. Although if he really wanted to meet with the uh, person who holds the levers of power, I suppose that would be the Ayatollah.
um, um, who is the uh, the person who actually has the power there. Also, U.S. Navy says that there is no sign of Iranian harassment of American warships in 2018, which is an interesting development. A pair of wildfires that prompted evacuation orders for nearly 20,000 people barreled uh, Monday towards small lake towns in northern California as firefighters work to contain multiple other blazes all across the state. Officials said Sunday uh, on Sunday ordered evacuations around twin fires in uh, Mendocino and Lake uh, Counties, including from the 4,700 resident town of Lakeport, a popular destination for bass anglers and boaters on the shores of Clear Lake, about 120 miles north of San Francisco. The blazes have uh, destroyed seven homes, threatened 10,000 others. So far, the flames have blackened more than 68,000 acres, well over 100 square miles, with minimal containment. Those fires were among 17 burning across the state of California, where fire crews were stretched to the limit. Farther north, the wildfire in Redding, California, a blaze is now uh, believed to be uh, the ninth most destructive in state history. California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection spokesman Scott McLean says the blaze, which uh, killed two firefighters and four civilians, including two children, has now destroyed 818 homes and 311 outbuildings and damaged 165 homes. Uh, More than 27,000 people remain evacuated from their homes, although another 10,000 were allowed to return on Monday as fire crews reinforce lines on the western end of that blaze. And CBS didn't take immediate action regarding CEO Les Moonves amid accusations by multiple women of sexual harassment after board members gathered Monday to discuss the situation. CBS Corporation announced today that its board of directors is in process of selecting outside counsel to conduct an independent investigation. No other action was taken on this matter at today's board meeting, the company said in a statement. Well, the board met on Monday after a bombshell Ronan Farrow article in The New Yorker that uh, was published last week in which six women accused the longtime network exec of sexual harassment. In addition, more than two dozen company employees, past and present, detailed incidents involving harassment, gender discrimination, and retaliation at the network between the 1980s and 2000s. And on this day in 2013, President Barack Obama's national security team acknowledges for the first time that when investigating one suspected terrorist, it could read and store the phone records of millions of Americans. And on this day in 1991, President George Herbert Walker Bush and Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev signed the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty in Moscow. And on this day in 1972, Democratic vice presidential candidate Thomas Eagleton withdraws from the ticket with George McGovern following disclosures that Eagleton had once undergone psychiatric treatment. My health times have changed. We're going to take a quick break. It's about 19 minutes after four o'clock. Also a reminder that Daniel Henderson, author of Transforming Presence, will be our guest later this hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 24 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, prosecutors accused former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort of being a shrewd liar who orchestrated a global scheme to avoid paying taxes on millions of dollars in opening statements that kicked off Manafort's trial today. Manafort lived an extravagant lifestyle, they said, fueled by millions of dollars in secret income that he earned from the lobbying in Ukraine. Uh, Uzo Osonye, a prosecutor working on the case with special counsel Robert Mueller's team, said Manafort became wealthy from the 
cash spigot that came from working for his golden goose in Ukraine, he went on to say. Former President Viktor Yanukovych, or something very like that, he went on to say. All of these charges boil down to one simple issue, that Paul Manafort lied, he said. The uh, prosecuting attorney, Manafort, placed himself and his money over the law. Well, the case against uh, Manafort outlined by prosecutors on Tuesday represents a new phase in the Mueller investigation into Russian election meddling. The first jury trial stemmed from the rather stemming from the probe that President Donald Trump has repeatedly attacked as a witch hunt. In opening statements for the defense, Manafort's defense attorney, uh, Thomas Zanel, um, laid out uh, the bare bones of his side of the case, shifting much of the blame to the Ukrainian oligarchs Manafort uh, worked for and the business associates he worked with. Uh, This is the way that they required it to be done, he said, arguing why oligarchs paid Manafort through secret foreign accounts. Prosecutors said Tuesday that Manafort hid 30 foreign bank accounts from U.S. authorities. Uh, Manafort's associates, like longtime Deputy Rich Gates, uh, his attorney said he trusted them to speak with one another and make sure things were done right. Gates pleaded guilty earlier this uh, this year to participating in Manafort's alleged financial conspiracy and is slated to testify against him. Both men were top officials in Trump's campaign, but that is not part of the criminal case against Manafort in this trial. Uh, Zelny, his attorney, specifically attacked Gates and called him the prosecution's star witness. Manafort is facing 18 charges, including accusations of filing false tax returns, failing to report foreign bank accounts, and defrauding several banks. If convicted, he faces a maximum sentence of 305 years in prison. He is denied all charges. Manafort arrived at the courthouse Tuesday morning wearing a black suit with his uh, hair near, uh, neatly parted. To demonstrate his uh, lavish spending habits, uh, the prosecuting attorney told jurors that Manafort owed several, or rather owned several homes, acquired real estate in New York and Virginia, brought expensive cars and watches, and even got a $15,000 jacket made from an ostrich. Now, if his uh, uh, lifestyle uh, is at issue, then that seems to be um, kind of a faulty bit of logic. But if the income is the issue, I suppose how he chose to spend the money uh, is of little importance. But nonetheless, that's the tack that the uh, prosecutor prosecution uh, decided to start with. As he started delivering his uh, opening statement, he earned a near immediate rebuke from Judge T.S. Ellis, who took him not to tell, uh, told him not to tell jurors that the evidence will show that the allegations against Manafort are true. During his preliminary instructions to the jury, the judge reminded uh, jurors that you and you alone are the sole judges to the facts of this case. The opening statements were delivered not long after the jury was selected and sworn in on Tuesday. The 12-person jury comprises of six men, six women. There are also four alternates, three women and a man. Ellis, uh, the judge, has um, also given the pool of 65 potential jurors, an overview of the charges against Manafort, uh, though he reminded the group that the indictment is not evidence of any guilt whatsoever. The pool was also nearly uh, evenly split between men and women. The group was predominantly white, with fewer than a dozen non-white potential jurors. Most were comfortably middle-aged. Nine potential jurors indicated they were uh, they had connections to the Justice Department, including four who said that they were current or former federal employees. Two joked that they were recovering attorneys. All affirmed that they could handle the case without bias. None said that they knew Manafort, his lawyers, or their law firm. Uh, one younger woman said she knew Justice Department attorneys from her work at the Silicon Valley-based uh, tech company. Another man brought a John Grisham novel to the courtroom. The trial is expected to last for several weeks, and we'll uh, certainly follow highlights as they are made available. Meanwhile, Alan Dershowitz said special counsel Robert Mueller is squeezing former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort to get to President Trump. He says his team uh, on Tuesday requested that the court compel five potential witnesses to testify at one of the upcoming trials. 
in exchange for immunity. Manafort faces numerous charges, and Dershowitz, a Harvard law professor emeritus, noted that Manafort was indicted for matters unrelated to Russian meddling. He said it's clear that Mueller's team is targeting Trump and the people around him, and they're attempting to use Manafort to do so. He's a means toward an end, and that's just not the way justice should operate, Dershowitz said. Civil libertarians have long been opposed to that method of squeezing witnesses, indicting them for kind of unrelated crime, and then trying to get them to testify uh, against more important people. He added that a concern is that not only will Manafort sing, he will compose, meaning that he might make things up or exaggerate because the better story he tells, the better deal he'll get. Manafort's trial began in Washington, D.C. today um, and will continue for some time. Notre Dame professor Laura Hollis wrote this about the FISA documents and what they revealed about FBI collusion. The FBI used opposition research paid for by the Democrats as justification for government spying on a political opponent and other Americans. But there's more. In another incredible coincidence, Fusion GPS had hired scholar and professor Nellie Orr as a paid Russian expert. Nellie Orr happens to be married to Bruce Orr, deputy attorney general in the Justice Department. Bruce Orr is alleged to have passed his wife's anti-Trump research to the FBI. He was demoted for failing to disclose not only his wife's employment with Fusion GPS, but also his um, own meetings with Fusion GPS founder Glenn Simpson. The FISA court was never told any of that. They were never supposed to know. None of us was ever supposed to know. And Britt Hume points out that um, uh, Devin Nunez is now pushing for declassification and release of the uh, still censored parts of the Carter Page FISA warrant applications. And finally, Fred Barnes points out that Nunez would like to know why one volunteer advisor to Trump, Carter Page, was wiretrapped for a year and another minor aide was sought out uh, by an FBI informant. Uh, And a uh, further question is whether these cases were less a search for evidence of Trump-Russia collusion than a covert way of looking inside the Trump campaign illegally. In any case, Democrats are still furious at the committee's change of direction uh, inside the, uh, though it uh, occurred more than a year ago. They'd like uh, deep to deep sticks uh, the, the investigation entirely at one time or another. They've called for Nunez to step down as chairman or resign from Congress or just clear out of town. That's not going to happen, um, but that's what they would uh, would prefer to see done. Portions of today's program are brought to you by Zero Res, and in a moment we're going to change our focus. We'll talk with Daniel Henderson, who is the author of Transforming Presence, How the Holy Spirit Changes Everything from the Inside Out. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 37 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In the introduction to the book, we're going to be talking about Transforming Presence. Pastor H.B. Charles uh, makes this observation. The filling of the Spirit in some circles is a controversial, divisive, and misunderstood ministry of the Holy Spirit. Ask any Christian what it means to be filled with the Spirit. The answer may reflect ignorance, fear, speculation, fanaticism, or indifference. Why is there so much confusion about Spirit filling? Two reasons, no teaching and wrong teaching. My guest uh, points out that we need a biblical understanding of the Holy Spirit. And in his book, Transforming Presence, published by Moody Publishers, he walks you through 10 vital practices that will help you have a new experience of the Holy Spirit. You'll learn how our relationship with the Holy Spirit changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament, what common misconceptions of the Holy Spirit are, and how to think, speak, and sing rightly about Him. Daniel Henderson, in his book, offers 10 practices to help you discover the transformational, personal, and joyful relationship that comes from meeting the Holy Spirit. My guest, for almost three decades, has served as a pastor to thousands in congregations in California and Minnesota. Today, as founder and president of Strategic Renewal, 
Renewal International. He leads renewal events and coaches pastors across North America. Uh, Daniel Henderson is sought after for his expertise in leading corporate prayer. He is also the national director of the 6-4 Fellowship, a cross-denominational community of pastors focused on the primary biblical priorities of prayer and the ministry of the Word, based on Acts 6-4. Daniel has authored numerous books on biblical leadership and prayer, including Old Paths, New Power, and Transforming Prayer. He and his wife live in Denver, Colorado. He joins us today to talk about his book, Transforming Presence, How the Holy Spirit Changes Everything from the Inside Out. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Georgine. What an introduction. It's a privilege to be with you. You know, it's uh, it's interesting that uh, the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus himself uh, outlined such a significant role in the life of the believer, has become such a controversial subject uh, in the life of, of his church. Why do you think that is the case? I suggested what uh, Pastor uh, Charles uh, penned in your book, but why do you think we are so insecure about the work of, uh, and uh, unclear in our understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, one statistic that isolates that, and then to clarify an answer, is LifeWay Research did a study recently and found that 50% of evangelical Christians view the Holy Spirit as a force rather than a person. And I think that's part of the core problem. Uh, I think a lot of us still have language that's not consistent with what Jesus taught. It's sincere, no doubt, and we all want the same thing. I don't doubt that a bit. But, but I would suggest, Georgine, that when Jesus sat in the upper room with his disciples and he said, this is the new covenant, spiritual fireworks went off their head because that's everything the old covenant had looked forward to. And it all had to do, as you know, with this new reality of the indwelling presence of God in our hearts. And as I say in the book, from a New Testament standpoint, everything we need to understand the Holy Spirit is always inside out, not outside in. And I think part of the controversy today is that we still speak of the Holy Spirit as a force, some outside in thing that happens or comes into the room or whatever, rather than understanding Jesus died to sanctify our hearts. And Pentecost was the new day in which now the Holy Spirit actually lives the very person of God in the heart of every believer. You write that for many years as a pastor and avid student of the Bible, the leading of the Holy Spirit had been a theological concept tucked away in my neatly categorized seminary file. Over these years, through the prayer summits and many other experiences, the leadership of the Holy Spirit has become a treasured interchange with an intimate friend, a divine tutor living and ruling in my heart. The Spirit's purposes are becoming more clear to me to take the Word of Christ and make it real to the people of Christ so they would honor the person of Christ in the mission of Christ for the glory of Christ. What helped you to better understand in your pursuit and, and understanding of Scripture to better understand who the Holy Spirit is, not as an, 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 an animate force, but as a person, uh, the third person of the Trinity? Yeah, thanks. My, my friend Jim Simbola, he often says it this way, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, churches are either cemeteries or insane asylums. <laughs> <laughs> kind of captures the extreme sometimes. In my own journey, I've been probably on both extremes over the years, and I, I think this really represents both a really solid commitment to understand not only what the Bible says, but historically what notable Christian leaders have said. There's over 250 footnotes balanced with a real experiential reality of the Holy Spirit. As you noted, I've had the privilege of leading about 100 prayer summits now, no agenda whatsoever. There's no script as the Holy Spirit has to work. You know, in a real openness to see how the Holy Spirit who wrote the Bible was to take the Word, as you read a moment ago, and ignite that in the hearts of the people through the indwelling Holy Spirit and create significant 
transformational ministry in and through each believer in order to make the church all that Jesus wanted to be. And I think on one extreme, you know, there are people who are afraid of emotion. On the other extreme, there are people who equate the Holy Spirit with emotion, although he certainly works at emotional level. And I think the balance of both biblical understanding and yet a real openness of heart to experiencing the person of the Holy Spirit is such a great need in the church today. You know, Francis Chan said the Holy Spirit was the forgotten God. I think today he's sometimes become the misrepresented God, which is why we've got to get back to what Jesus really had in mind. Mm. You write that I have written this book not to question your experience of the Holy Spirit, but to challenge you to think of his work more clearly and to speak from his word more biblically so you can experience his transforming power in your life more consistently. Before we move forward, I, I want to address what um, you won't find in this book, because again, when you're talking about the Holy Spirit, immediately um, there's uh, sort of a defense mechanism that comes up. What is this book not, what's not to be found in this book for those who are a bit leery? Yeah, I wanted to make that clear because the pastors to work with, for example, in our national fellowship and churches I minister to have a variety of backgrounds on some of those more controversial issues like which spiritual gifts are for today, you know, miracles, healing, is there a second baptism of the Spirit? And I kind of just gave a pass to everyone on some of those. You know, whatever you believe about that is fine. But what really does matter is that we understand what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit. And first of all, as I write in the book, Georgine, his purpose. I think if we forget what his purpose is, then we can really get entangled in how he works and get into some debates. As I mentioned in the book, uh, the Holy Spirit is a purpose in spirit. He has one purpose, and that's always to exalt Jesus Christ. And anything we equate to the work of the Holy Spirit that detracts from that, I think, is really suspect. So if we can agree to the why, and we can give each other a little bit of flexibility on some of the house, I think we can all come to a point of agreeing that what he wants to do is transform us into the image of Christ from the inside out as the very person of the Spirit of Christ in our hearts. Now, the subtitle of the book is How the Holy Spirit Changes changes everything from the inside out. And you offer some insight into some of the things that we need to do in order to, uh, some practices that we need to incorporate to uh, to experience the transformational, personal, and joyful relationship that comes from uh, meeting the Holy Spirit. The first thing that you uh, suggest is that we need to agree to evaluate uh, our assumptions, that we, are, we open ourselves up not to tradition or what other people are saying, but to look to God's Word to clarify who is the Holy Spirit and what is His work. That's right. And in that chapter, I quote um, Assembly of God scholars uh, for those who are on that side of our Christian family, and I quote very conservative scholars on that side of our Christian family, and again, I think uh, we all have preconditioned ideas. I, I kind of joke about the fact as a kid, uh, they preached out of the King James, and the Holy Spirit was the Holy Ghost. Of course, all I had a reference point to was Casper the Friendly Ghost, so I had some really <laughs> weird assumptions about the Holy Spirit, right? <laughs> and I think, as funny as that is, I think if the words have meaning, if traditions can grip us, and loyalty to teachers or ideas can sometimes keep us having a, just a real honest understanding of what the New Testament really teaches. And honestly, Georgina, writing this book, I, I literally had to evaluate some major assumptions in my life about words I have used over the years and ideas I have quoted, even as a pastor, that actually weren't consistent with what Jesus and Paul taught about the person of the Holy Spirit. You also um, encourage your readers to embrace the Holy Spirit's primary purpose. And it occurred to me as uh, I read through the book that we may not have a clear understanding of what the Holy Spirit's primary purpose is. 
We need to take a break. When we come back, maybe we can pick it up from there. What uh, What is the purpose of the Holy Spirit, and why did Jesus make uh, make it so plain that the Holy Spirit would provide what we needed when he would ascend into heaven? So we'll get into that in just a few moments. Again, we're talking this afternoon with uh, Daniel Henderson. Um, the book is titled Transforming Presence, How the Holy Spirit Changes Everything from Inside Out. We'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Why did Jesus say it would be better for him to go? Well, my next guest points out that he said the coming of the Helper, the Holy Spirit, was that important, and that the Spirit who is powerfully turning bumbling disciples into unstoppable world changers is alive in us. But misunderstandings, confusions, and contentions are keeping us from the abundant, satisfying life God has for us in Him. My guest is Daniel Henderson, the author of Transforming Presence, How the Holy Spirit Changes Everything from the Inside Out. Well, let me ask the question, um, what is the primary purpose of the Holy Spirit? Uh, And again, it's so important for us to know because Jesus Himself said that it would be better for Him to go for the sake of our having access to and receiving the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's right. And I love to say it this way, uh, J.D. Greer uh, first quoted this, but that the Spirit inside us is better than Jesus beside us. And that had to be a shock to the disciples. Mm -hmm. They still wanted him to stay. But that really gives way to the greater works that Jesus did, because now the very Spirit that they saw work in the life of Jesus, through the life of Jesus, was now going to be in every heart and could go viral through millions of lives. And Jesus said the purpose of that in his Upper Room Discourse, again, so important to understand what he taught there. Right after he mentioned the covenant, he three times does a a whole description of the Holy Spirit. He says, he shall glorify me. And, of course, the way he does that is, is manifold by, first of all, making us like Jesus, by putting power within us that we don't have, and by certainly supernaturally advancing because of the gospel, as you know, and we all know, is the reason why we're still here, right? Our reason we didn't get beamed up when we got saved is so we could stay here with the indwelling spirit in us to be world dangers through his power. Now, you uh, point out that the gospel lens is empowers us to enjoy a new and full experience of the Holy Spirit. How can we, first of all, better understand uh, the, the purpose and the power of the Holy Spirit and experience what Christ made reference to uh, before he ascended into heaven? Yeah, I think, uh, again, studying over and over again what Jesus said to the disciples, which set the whole trajectory for a covenant experience of the Holy Spirit. And as I said earlier, you know, Pentecost was the first time now that the Holy Spirit was going to permanently indwell every believer. Uh, in the Old Testament, the Spirit came and went. And I like to say it this way, it, it sounds kind of tricky, but I think you'll find it to be true, that in the Old Testament, the presence of the Holy Spirit depended on the obedience of the people. When David sinned, he didn't want the Holy Spirit to leave him. Uh, when people sin, the Holy Spirit left the, the temple. But in the New Covenant, the presence of the Holy Spirit depends not on our obedience, but the obedience of Jesus, who went to the cross in order to make our hearts very, the, His very temple, the indwelling of His Spirit. Now, our experience of the Holy Spirit, our fullness, the power, all does depend on our obedience, and that's why we need to understand who He is and how He works so that we will be dominated by his presence in our lives and truly be supernaturally effective in bearing his fruit in this world. You made reference earlier to the fact that we often depersonalize the Holy Spirit and that even the technology in the church can contribute to this notion of an impersonal view of the Holy Spirit. How did we get there and how do we go back to what is um, more accurately reflected in Scripture? Yeah, you know, I have the privilege of traveling a lot and speaking, and most of the churches are speaking very large from a variety of denominations. But as we know, you know, they have 
all the bells and whistles. You know, they got the, the gargantuan sound systems, the digitized lights, the smoke machines, uh, you know, uh, images on three. And again, nothing wrong with those tools. But the troubling thing is that now we have begun to speak and sing of the Holy Spirit as an atmospheric phenomenon who has some impersonal force come into the room. I mean, there have been times I, I thought I should name church Star Wars Community Church, you know, the force is with me, take out my lightsaber and take on the devil, you know, and that's a little facetious, but... I think the bottom line is we are now beginning to create what I call atmospheric addicts who, who equate the Holy Spirit with all of the, the pizzazz of the technology. Words and songs even tend to point that way rather than helping people that know the Spirit of God is in you. We don't summon Him, we submit to Him. And, you know, the tendencies we get all jazzed up on the weekends and then fall flat on our face Monday through Saturday because we have not helped people understand that, as it says in Romans 11, the very power the red price from the dead lives in us. And you put this new covenant lens, it's amazing how many times you see the New Testament using that word, in you, in you, in you, in you. And that's what we need to help people understand today. Mm. Now, again, I, I mentioned that you offer some uh, practices that help us uh, discover the transformational, personal, and joyful relationship that we are intended to have in the Holy Spirit. And sometimes our, our worship doesn't point us in the right direction so that we arrive at what God intended um, you uh, say that uh, one of the practices that we uh, need to cultivate is living in the power of the new covenant. How do we do that, and, and what does that look like? That, again, I think is what it means to be gospel believer. And in the book, uh, we really unpack some really key passages in the Testament that use um, uh, they really contrast that. One of them is Paul in, in Second Corinthians, again describing that we are all ministers of a new covenant, and that in the old, the Spirit, you know, works in, in writing on stones and and came and went and was a temporary experience for Moses. But for us, the Spirit writes on hearts, and we all are now experiencing the glory of Christ uh, in our lives. In fact, sometimes I'll hear, and again, well intended, but we, you know, words matter because words create worlds, right? And, and when they're attached to songs, they sometimes become more powerful than the sermon in terms of being able to remember them. And we even simple things like, let your glory fall. Well, if you really think about that, you know, that's old covenant language. The new covenant language is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, God who said, let light shine in darkness has now shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the takeaway of all this, honestly, George, is that we would be more empowered, that we would be more intimate with the Holy Spirit, that 24 we would realize that his resurrection life is in us to transform us, to use us, and to produce the fruit of his character through us. And, uh, you know, no matter what our background is, I think that's really what we all want. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You make reference to the song, A Spirit of the Living God, God Fall Afresh on Me. And one of your uh, practices is seeking a filling, not a falling. Explain the distinction and why that's important for us to understand the person of the Holy Spirit. Yes, yeah, so the book of Acts, you know, which is the history of the advancement of the church, that term was used, the Spirit fell upon them at Pentecost, he fell in Mary, he fell in Ephesus. Very interestingly, the term is used to indicate the launching of the Church, the permanent coming of the Holy Spirit into those whose lives had been committed to the Gospel. And so there was connecting of the dots with that idea of now this has fallen, and from this point on, he fills, he dwells, etc. And again, I think we tend to, to default to either alternate language or unique language that was specific in the Book of Acts, but not language that's actually taught or normal. 
our Christian life. The Spirit fell at Pentecost, but every time after that, for those who read Pentecost, the word that's always used is he filled. He filled Peter. He filled the disciples. And, of course, what Paul taught in Ephesians 5, that the uh, ultimate command for the believer, e.e. being filled, controlled, dominated by the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit. So, you know, words matter, and uh, that's why we really need to kind of, as I say in the book, one of the practices is filter the message and the music. What do you hope ultimately your readers will uh, come away with at, when they've studied what the scriptures have to say about the Holy Spirit and we discover or perhaps rediscover the extraordinary gift that Jesus left for us, uh, so much so that he said it would be better for him to go, to go uh, rather than uh, for us to live without the Holy Spirit. So what do you hope your readers will, will learn? Yeah, I think individually, I hope they have a new conviction about power of the cross and what it is now made available them and the person the Holy Spirit. I think a new compulsion to live in His presence, live by His presence every day, being surrendered to Him, controlled by Him, transformed by Him. And then a new conviction that the Holy Spirit wants to use them to literally turn the world upside down. And I think corporately, my, my conclusion is all about a new covenant revival. And I think we all know we need that. And I love what Norman says. He says, revival is not something we summons from above, because he says the reviver is in us. And he simplifies it so well. He says, ultimately, revival is obedience to the Holy Spirit. So, Jerry, I really think if we could all really have that kind of a conviction and competence and confidence and compulsion about the reality of the person of the Holy Spirit, it really could lead to a broad, organic transformation revival in our nation, in our churches, our families, and our lives. And that's really my hope in writing this book. Well, I thank you so much for writing the book and for taking the time to talk with us about it here today. Thank you, Georgine. God bless. Again, the title of the book, Transforming Presence, How the Holy Spirit Changes Everything from the Inside Out. If you want to study what the scriptures have to say, you'll find it in this book. Daniel Henderson, uh, once again, my guest, and the book is published by Moody. We've got news and traffic coming at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after five o'clock is our time. During this uh, this hour, we're going to give away our family four pack of Oregon State Fair tickets. That's coming up probably in our next segment. Just a little bit of a heads up. Well, Facebook announced today that it has removed some 32 inauthentic Instagram and Facebook profiles and pages because the company believes they were part of a coordinated disinformation campaign. We're still in the very early stage of our investigation, they say, and don't have all the facts, including who may be behind this. But we are sharing what we know today, given the connection between these bad actors and protests uh, that are planned in Washington next week. We will update this uh, post with more details when we have them or if the facts we have change, the company said in a statement. Well, many of the named pages and accounts seem to espouse progressive or left-wing political messages. One page, resistors, went as far as creating an event schedule between August 10th and 12th called No United the Right to D.C. About 2,600 Facebook users expressed interest in the event and more than 600 said they were attending, according to the company. Inauthentic admins of the resistors page connected with the admins from five legitimate pages to co-host the event. These legitimate pages unwittingly helped build interest in No Unite Right right to D.C. uh, and posted information about transportation, materials, locations, so people uh, could get to the protest.
protests, according to Facebook. The page linking to information to the event had been taken down, and Facebook said it would continue sharing information with law enforcement and with Congress. Unlike previous incidents, Facebook didn't seem confident it would be able to identify who was behind the campaign. Over 290,000 accounts followed at least one of these fake pages, which had names like um, Atslan Warriors or Pro-Latin American Page, Black Elevation, a Black Pride Page, and Mindful Being. Some images posted from resistors included memes calling on President Donald Trump to resign from office, while others posted images with feminist slogans. According to the New York Times, coordinated activity was also detected around Abolish ICE, a left-wing campaign on social media that seeks to end the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency. The pages in question were responsible for creating around 30 events since May of 2017, uh, with one event having approximately 4,700 accounts interested in attending and 1,400 users saying they would attend. The left-leaning nature of this new round of fraudulent accounts throws a curveball into the narrative that outside governments or groups favor one political party over the others. Since the 2016 election, American intelligence officials have routinely warned social media companies and political campaigns about foreign interference. During the last presidential election, the Russian government was held responsible for spreading fake news to users on a variety of websites. A number of law enforcement agencies have warned that Russia has shown no sign of stopping its behavior despite repeated denials from Russian President Vladimir Putin. Meanwhile, Bill Gertz points out that foreign spies from China, Russia and Iran are conducting aggressive cyber operations to steal valuable U.S. technology and economic secrets, according to a U.S. counterintelligence report. The report by the National Counterintelligence and Security Center, or DNI, counterspy unit, concludes that China is among the most aggressive states engaged in stealing U.S. proprietary information as part of a government-directed program. Artificial intelligence and the Internet of, uh, of Things are giving adversaries new tools for cyber spying. Key technologies under cyber attack from foreign economic spies are related to the energy, biotechnology, uh, defense, environmental protection, high-end manufacturing and information and communications industries. China's cyberspace operations are part of a complex, multi-pronged technology development strategy that uses illicit and licit methods to achieve its goals, the report says. Chinese companies and individuals often acquire U.S. technology for commercial and scientific purposes, the report states. At the same time, the Chinese government seeks to enhance its collection of U.S. technology by enlisting the support of a broad range of actors spread throughout its government and industrial base. Well, the report warned that the problem is continuing and urged greater um, efforts to counter Chinese cyber economic spying. We believe that China will continue to be a threat to the United States proprietary technology and intellectual property through cyber-enabled means or other methods, the report said. If this threat is not addressed, it could erode America's long-term competitive economic advantage. Among the methods used for the Chinese economic espionage program are traditional spies attached to the Ministry of State Security and Military Intelligence offices, as well as a wide range of non-traditional spies. Those include some of the 350,000 Chinese students currently studying in the United States, along with Chinese engaged in business. Beijing also uses joint ventures between the Chinese and U.S. companies, research partnerships, laboratories, and other research centers, the purchase of American companies, front companies, and the use of Chinese laws that seek to force American companies operating in China to provide trade secrets. Chinese um, economic spying is continuing despite a promise by Chinese leader Xi Jinping in September of 2015 not to engage in commercial spying. Uh, The level of cyber economic espionage, however, by China has been lower since the accord, the report says, but it has continued. Security experts have identified Chinese economic espionage targeting 
uh, of engineering, tech, telecommunications, and aerospace companies. Beijing cyber spies also hacked the popular Sea Cleaner app uh, that was used by China to target Google, Microsoft, Intel, and v, uh, VMware. A Chinese hacker dubbed Keyboy last year began conducting cyber spying operations against Western companies, and another group, Temp.Periscope, conducted cyber attacks on maritime industry and others. Well, it goes on from there, but the three most uh, aggressive and uh, bad actors of concern are China, Russia, and Iran engaging in aggressive economic cyber spying, not just uh, social media, trying to convey a message and manipulate uh, support. Also, uh, just a side note, conservative groups in Brazil, they're protesting against Facebook after it banned 196 pages and 87 individual profiles, many of them on the right side of the ideological spectrum. Well, the Facebook purge has raised concerns that the platform may be pursuing a political agenda, agenda rather, in the run-up to the October 7th election of the new president, a new national congress, and new state assemblies. Facebook has more than 100 million users in Brazil, about half of the country's population. The Facebook accounts were removed on the 25th of this month without any notification. One of the organizations affected is Brazil 200, a free market group founded by businessman and former presidential candidate Flavio Roja. Other banned pages have links to um, uh, the Free Brazil movement, a main grassroots movement behind the massive protest that successfully demanded the impeachment of leftist President Dilma Rousseff in 2016. Facebook defended that move, claiming in a press release in Portuguese that the pages and profiles were part of a coordinated network that disguised itself using fake accounts and hid from the public the nature and origins of its content for the purpose of causing division and spreading disinformation, Facebook decided. The company, however, refused to provide more details to back up its allegations. After the incident, congressmen from the country of the center-right progressive party who headed a Brazil 200 anti-corruption effort in the Brazilian legislature called for an investigation into the issue. This is unacceptable, he said, speaking to the local newspaper. Another federal prosecutor in the Brazilian state of uh, Goiás also has demanded full disclosure by Facebook of the complete list of banned pages and the reasons why Facebook urged each one of them. Legal and constitutional norms that regulate the Internet in Brazil always regard freedom of expression and the right to uh, associate and access information and knowledge, he went on to say. Uh, On the 26th of July, leaders of one of the movements organized a demonstration at the Facebook headquarters in Sao Paulo. Earlier this year, the Heritage Foundation published a lengthy report that concluded the bloated and centralized federal government has crushed economic freedom in Brazil and fostered a climate conducive to corruption and cronyism. Let's hope that such reports will be available on Facebook and throughout Brazil to anyone interested in reading them before the October election. So far, uh, Facebook has not answered uh, the question of who and why these pages were removed. 16 minutes after 5 o'clock is our time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. 20 minutes after 5 o'clock is our time. Want to take a moment and give away our next four-pack of tickets to the Oregon State Fair. Uh, this uh, pass to the Oregon State Fair, of course, applies to any day you choose to use them. But I want to mention that Wednesday, the 29th of August, is Faith and Family Night at the Oregon State Fair. Day passes include general admission, seating at the Skillet concert that night. So if you want to take advantage, um, that's a good night to uh, to go. We want to give away our uh, family four-pack of uh, day passes to the Oregon State Fair to caller number three. And the number to call, 503-786-9390. That's 503-786-9390. A family four-pack of day passes to the Oregon State Fair. All right. By the way, that runs the... Um, I don't have the dates here. i figure it out. Okay. Um, Mitch McConnell says that he wants the vote on the Supreme Court nominee, Kavanaugh, to come before the election. And of course, we uh, noted yesterday that Mr. Kavanaugh met with the first uh, um, Democrat uh, senator. Uh, senator Manchin um, met with
with him on Monday. Rand Paul says that he will vote in his favor. We don't know what John McCain might do in that he is out being treated for a brain tumor, but this will be very close, but it is predicted that he will be confirmed, um, but not uh, before going through many dangers, toils, and snares. Well, during an interview on Sunday, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, speaking of the Supreme Court, announced her five-year plan, asked how much longer she planned to stay on the Supreme Court, which may be considered something of a rude question, asked of an 85-year-old woman. Um, Ginsburg replied that Justice John Paul Stevens stepped down when he was 90, and since she's 85, Ginsburg said, I have at least five more years. Liberals are applauding, others maybe not so much. Ginsburg's desire to live and be healthy enough to continue her life's work, we get that. Just as if she's a very passionate person about the uh, job that she has been given. The desire to live is universal. It's the same for everyone, no matter their race, ethnic background, class, or gender, and that's a great irony. Gary Bauer points out that Ginsburg is just about as far left as you can get. She has mocked the idea of our constitutional limits, uh, that it limits what she can do. She has even looked to foreign law for inspiration and in interpreting our Constitution. And she, not surprisingly, is an aggressive supporter of abortion on demand. Well, based on current statistics, if Ginsburg serves on the Supreme Court for another five years, more than four and a half million unborn children will be denied their right to life, not to mention their right to pursue their hopes and dreams as she has been able to do for some 85 years thus far. Now, I don't begrudge, Bauer points out, her desire to live, but if she does, it would be a wonderful miracle if she came to realize that defenseless unborn children want to live too. Don't these vulnerable vulnerable children deserve to be protected by law and welcomed into the world? Have mercy, Justice Ginsburg. Five more years until she's 90. If she's capable, I don't see any problem with that by virtue of her age, Um, but I think Gary Bauer makes an interesting point. Well, in a scoop over the weekend, the Boston Globe reported federal air marshals have begun following ordinary U.S. citizens not suspected of a crime or any other terrorism watch list and collecting extensive information about their movements and behavior under a new domestic surveillance program that's drawing criticism within the agency. The program is called Quiet Skies, an Internal Transportation Security Administration, or TSA, bulletin outlines the objective as decreasing threats by unknown or particularly known terrorists and to identify and provide enhanced screening to higher-risk travelers before they board aircraft based on analysis of terrorist trends, tradecraft, and associations. Many are raising Fourth Amendment objections over the program, much like errantly ending up on the terrorist watch list. Citizens have little recourse for removal. In fact, most profiling subjects may never know that they were singled out. Also, you you don't have any... uh, have to do anything wrong to end up being profiled. Certain behaviors that don't seem at all unusual are enough. The government isn't um, to be blindly trusted with security, our liberty because uh, uh, securing rather our liberty because the Constitution is so often ignored by agencies and bureaucracies. But as it's been argued for years, terrorist profiling should be employed along the lines of the Israeli model of observing specific behavior. The TSA didn't confirm any specific targets, but a spokesman did say these programs are designed to protect the traveling public, but they're not targeting the average American. We're talking about a very unique passenger that warrants the attention of a federal air marshal. The TSA said people are dropped from observation after an undisclosed amount of time if there's no reason to continue. Now, I've been in and out of the airport in Israel, and I will tell you, it is no joke. I have often thought, I wish we did it like this. You don't walk your way through the airport uh, kind of joking and um, making high fives with the uh, with the security team that works there. It's a very sober thing, and they their scrutiny is very serious. And you recognize um, the, the reason for that. And I've often thought we should have something similar here. Uh, whether or not that what the TSA is uh, is now doing is similar, it's not altogether clear. But we do know in Israel, the model of observing specific behavior
behavior is used. Well, there's no obvious or blatant constitutional violation simply in observing and tracking certain behavior or individuals for a short time in public venues, particularly when the vulnerability of our air travel system resulted in the worst terrorist attack in uh, U.S. history on 9-11. It's easy to forget that. Uh, We're in 2018, but that isn't to say the TSA program is effective, well-managed, or flawless use of their resources. The jury is still out on that. Uh, It is to say that some profiling isn't wrong, quite the contrary, and it's worth taking a moment to remember that amidst the sudden civil liberties panic among uh, those who hate Donald Trump uh, more than any terrorist, we need to consider what's actually being done and uh, to what uh, end and whether or not it's being done well. Well, Republicans in anticipating the midterm elections, although we're far enough out that perhaps our speculation on the subject is of little use, they have a steep hill to climb, we're being told, by those who monitor such things this early in the game. The House GOP will be defending a record number of open seats in November. Some 42 currently Republican-held seats are being vacated, the most since 1930. Eight of these seats are in districts that voted for Hillary Clinton, and another 13 are in districts that President Donald Trump won by a slim margin. In other words, potential toss-ups. David Wasserman of the Cook Political Report currently rates 19 of these 42 seats are still solidly in Republican hands, and another 11 as Republican-leaning, whereas three seats are likely going to Democrats. For the Democrats to win control of the House, they need to flip a total of 23 seats. Wasserman adds, with 102 days to go, Democrats remain substantial favorites for House control. The Cook analysis uh, currently rates 181 Democrats and 153 Republican seats as solid. Well, to make matters worse, the resurgence, David Thornton notes that Republican candidates also face a fundraising gap. The leading Democrat raised more than the Republicans in 20 of the 42 Republican open seats between April and June. This wasn't uh, only true in uh, all but one of the districts carried by Hillary, but also in 13 of the 34 districts carried by Trump. So as it looks now, Democrats appear to have a distinct advantage and much to be hopeful for three months out. But as the adage goes, the only real numbers that matter are seen on Election Day and much is sure to happen between now and then, now and November. To wit, there was also a 90 percent chance that Donald Trump would lose to Hillary Clinton. Everyone expected it before, of course, he didn't. It's an interesting observation that doesn't tell us anything until votes are actually passed. Well, like it or not, America is now seriously debating socialism. It has begun. We're having a debate over the subject. Rich Lowry points out that not over whether it's fair to call Democrats socialists, not over whether socialism has been good for Venezuela or some other faraway, unfortunate country, but no kidding socialist policies right here in the United States. The press attention to the new study of the costs of Medicare for all or universal health coverage paid for by the government that goes much further than Obamacare is a sign that it is a live issue. Popularized by the socialist Bernie Sanders, Medicare for all is not just a fringy left wing talking point anymore. It's a fringy plank of a growing element of the Democratic Party. A raft of prospective Democratic presidential candidates have endorsed the policy, while about a third of Democratic members of the House have joined a caucus devoted to it. The good news for um, Sanders and company is that in the wake of the failure of an attempted GOP repeal of Obamacare, the health care debate is clearly moving left. The bad news is that Medicare for all is still a completely politically unserious idea. The new study of its costs from the conservative Mercatus Center concludes that Medicare for all would increase federal spending by almost $33 trillion during the first 10 years. To put it in non-technical terms, that's a lot. Well, the study notes that it would be less expensive to the federal government to triple all projected appropriations and that doubling up all currently projected federal individual and corporate income tax collections 
collections would be insufficient to finance the added federal cost of the plan. Supporters of the idea uh, impeach the credibility of the findings based on their source. Yet a study by the centrist Urban Institute in 2016 found exactly the same thing. The math doesn't lie. The costs aren't merely a theoretical matter. Vermont, the home of Senator Sanders, abandoned a single-player proposal after the Democratic governor concluded that it wasn't fiscally sustainable. Despite its Democratic supermajorities, California gave up on a single-payer proposal last year for the same reason. The projected cost was twice as much as the state budget. The upside is that Medicare for All purports to save on overall health care spending by ratcheting down payments to health care providers, which means there may be a provider shortage. Medicare does indeed pay less to hospitals than private insurers, but it's not clear this would be sustainable if hospitals could only count on Medicare-level payments. Regardless, hospitals are politically powerful and well-positioned to resist threats to their bottom line in Congress. Well, since Medicare for All would eliminate insurance premiums and provide health care free of charge, it would create an incentive for more usage and more health care expenditures. All of this is why the natural gravity is in a single-payer system um, is uh, toward brute force price controls and rationing to control costs. This wouldn't be popular, nor would the radical change that Medicare for All would entail. President Obama had a promise that if you like your health care, you can keep it because any change to private insurance is so toxic. Medicare for All would replace the employer-based system entirely for more than 150 million people. It wouldn't matter how much they liked their insurance, it would be gone as a matter of definition. It's hard to see Medicare for All as a plausible health care agenda, even if Democrats swept all elected branches of government in Washington in 2020. But the first step toward achieving any policy goal is creating a national debate over it and swinging one of the major political parties behind it. Bernie Sanders has had considerable success in that effort, and the allure of free health care, like free anything, can't be discounted. Republicans need to continue to develop and push their own ideas to reduce health care costs and adjust to the new reality where socialism doesn't simply represent a laugh line, but a battle that needs to be won. $32.6 trillion over 10 years. By the way, budget deficits are only getting bigger under Trump when it comes to big spending and fiscal irresponsibility. He's as conventional as they come. A big surprise. It turns out that uh, if you cut taxes while also spending more money, budget deficits get bigger. That has happened. And again, the numbers don't lie. Quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We will be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. 36 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just before the break, I was commenting on the deficit that continues to go up. And in that sense, uh, President Trump is as conventional as they come. Also, the states, many of the uh, states are drowning in irretrievable debt, as one uh, former governor put it, Governor Mitch uh, Daniel. He's a Republican out of Indiana on the states uh, like Connecticut, struggling to deal with their mounting debt as well uh, in the midst of the president's trade negotiation strategy. Connecticut may be the richest state in the country on a per capita basis, but it's racked up a sizable debt with more than $53 billion. And it could be taxpayers who are forced to bail out the Constitution state, according to the former governor. And Connecticut isn't the only state struggling with a debt crisis. You've got California, Illinois, New Jersey, New York. They're all unable to make pension payments to retired government workers. In Illinois, for example, vendors wait months to be paid by a government that's $30 billion in debt, one whose uh, bonds are just one notch above junk bond status, according to Daniels. New York's more than $356 billion in debt. New Jersey, more than $104 billion in debt. California, more than $428 billion in debt. There's no guarantee that Social Security will be available for future generations when they retire. 
Um, and these are just um, a few of the states, including some of the biggest, that are in deep water. Uh, Daniels went on to say, I think it's irretrievable. Pensions are at the core of it. It's not the only fiscal recklessness that they've practiced, but it's some of those uh, causes, some of those cases, rather, the bill um, are genuinely unpayable. Most likely, he said, the debt will fall on state taxpayers, and he warned that some of these states need to be cautious about raising already high taxes that would likely not come close to the debt they've already racked up. Again, irretrievable is the word he used. There may be a way in some states to have a reset of the pension obligations, although in some places uh, they've actually been constitutionally protected, which, of course, we've seen here in the state of Oregon. Speaking of socialism, Venezuela's inflation, by the way, may hit one million percent by the end of the year. The International Monetary Fund announced on Monday this incredible hyperinflation is reminiscent of the Weimar Germany um, at that time during the years immediately after World War One, in which wheelbarrows of full of uh, uh, that were full of cash were required to buy um, the bare essential items like a loaf of bread. Uh, to counter the hyperinflation problem, Venezuela's answer is to lop off five zeros from its currency value and to launch a state-backed cryptocurrency. It wasn't that long ago that the left praised socialist Venezuela as the model country, a good comparison to the mean, ruthless system here in the United States. Since Hugo Chavez government got control over the, nation, the uh, national oil and, uh, industry, poverty has been cut by half and extreme poverty by 70 percent. That's a quote from the New York Times. Mark uh, Weisbrot, in the wake of so- Socialist President Hugo Chavez re-election back in 2012. College enrollment has been more than doubled. Millions of people have access to health care for the first time, and the number of people eligible for public pensions has quadrupled, end quote, again, appearing in the New York Times. Just six years later in the country is a catastrophe. It seems 21st century socialism hasn't worked any better than 20th century socialism or any other kind of socialism for that matter. Uh, Venezuela's dire state is not for lack of resources. It is the most oil-rich country country in the world and used uh, used to be one of the wealthiest nations in South America. Now it's teetering on the edge of economic oblivion and the scale of its collapse is staggering. The economy has halved since 2013. Unemployment has now reached 30 percent. Basic items like baby uh, formula, toilet paper can't be found on store shelves. People have turned to car cannibalism or mass carpooling to minimize the number of vehicles running. Public transportation has ground to a halt. Hunger strikes by workers in the country's nationalized electricity company have led to widespread power outages and water shortages. Venezuela now struggles to pump oil out of the ground as its uh, nationalized oil company is uh, forced to import light crude from the United States to dilute the heavy oil it drills in Venezuela. Ironically, the policy of nationalization purportedly to give back to the people has left those very people destitute. No country has fallen farther and faster uh, than uh, on the scale of economic freedom than has Venezuela. Just a cautionary tale to the South. I'm looking into 3D plastic guns being sold on to, uh, to the public. Already spoke to NRA. Doesn't seem to make much sense, Trump tweeted. Meanwhile, attorneys general from eight states in the District of Columbia filed a lawsuit on Monday against the Trump administration to block distribution of materials that allow uh, the printing of untraceable, undetectable guns using 3D printers. Well, a federal judge in Seattle issued a restraining order today, this afternoon, temporarily stopping the release of blueprints to make make untraceable and undetectable 3D printed plastic guns. Now, this isn't quite the precedent that uh, we are being led to believe, and I would uh, encourage you to look at, um, oh, what's his name? If I have this here, I'll mention it to you. Oh, rats. It was a great article. I will, um, I'll bring it up tomorrow. Uh, how um, how new and innovative this is. I mean, printing a gun 3D, that's new and innovative, but untraceable, that may not be a fa- an entirely fair 
description, and it, it isn't as unique as uh, we would have. And I mean, I think it's a bad idea to have them out there, but I just think it's also important to know the truth about it. Anyway, a federal judge has issued a restraining order today. U.S. District Judge Robert Lasnik issued the order a day after eight states sued the government to block the settlement uh, reached by the administration last month, allowing a Texas-based company, Defense uh, Distributed, to resume online sharing of blueprints for the 3D firearms. Uh, I'll try to explain tomorrow what's behind all of this, but the company was set to allow downloads to, on Wednesday, although blueprints have been posted since Friday. The temporary restraining order blocks the release until the next scheduled hearing in August. In the meantime, congressional Democrats have urged the president to reverse the decision, letting defense distribution or distributed rather publish the plans. Trump said on Tuesday that he's looking into the idea, saying making 3D plastic guns available to the public doesn't seem to make much sense. So we'll uh, see what happens next. But there has been a restraining order up to this uh, point. Hundreds of gun owners in Florida have been ordered to give up their guns under a new law that took effect after the deadly Parkland shooting in February. Uh, The risk protection order signed by Florida Governor Rick Scott just three weeks after the gunman killed 17 people in Stoneman Douglas aims to temporarily remove weapons from gun owners who've been deemed by a judge to possibly be a threat to themselves or others. Roughly 200 firearms have been confiscated in the state since the law was enacted. Sergeant Jason Schmittendorf said, uh, speaking to the, uh, or from the uh, Pinellas County Sheriff's Office, speaking to local news, around 30,000 rounds of ammunition were also taken. A five-person team in the co- the uh, county that's worked solely on the risk protection law reported uh, reportedly have filed 64 risk protection petitions in court. Broward County, according to the uh, news outlet, has filed 88 risk protection petitions since March. It's a constitutional right to bear arms, and when you are asking the court to deprive someone of that right, we need to make sure we're making good decisions, right decisions, and the circumstances warranted. And Ellis County Sheriff Bob uh, Guterri uh, told the uh, the station in defense of the task force. Every petition filed under the order in that county has so far been granted by a judge, according to the report. 45 minutes after 5 o'clock is the time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. I mentioned this at the start of the program and want to repeat it because for those of you who have been praying for uh, Pastor Brunson, this is the latest. A Turkish court today rejected an appeal to end the house arrest of the American pastor who was at the center of an escalating diplomatic row between NATO allies Turkey and the United States. Turkey's state-run news agency reported. Now, the court in Izmir says uh, that they are refusing to lift a travel ban that prevents the pastor uh, from leaving Turkey, ruling there was no change in the strong criminal suspicion against the pastor. Uh, now, pastor Brunson, who has lived in Turkey for more than two decades, was arrested in December of 2016 on espionage and terror-related charges. He'd been jailed until he was released to his uh, home detention uh, last week on the 25th. The evangelical Christian pastor denies any wrongdoing. He faces a prison sentence of up to 35 years if he's convicted on both counts at the end of this ongoing trial, which is uh, ongoing is the right word because there isn't a trial date. Uh, it's set over, it's set over, it's set over, and uh, that has been the pattern and is the pattern in Turkey. Well, U.S. President uh, Donald Trump demanded that he be released. He announced possible sanctions last week against Turkey. It's a crucial NATO ally for its treatment of the pastor. The president says he's willing to engage in possible sanctions. Uh, the Turkish government refused to back down. They called the United States to respect Turkey's judicial process. It is unacceptable for the United States to use threatening language against Turkey over a continuing judicial case. 
presidential spokesman, Ibrahim Kalin, uh, said after a cabinet meeting uh, as they uh, considered the president's remarks, well, Turkey will never give up on its principled stance. Now, this might have helped. It might have hurt. We don't know. He reiterated that uh, Turkey would seek international arbitration if the United States refused to deliver F-35 fighter jets in retaliation. Apparently, there's an agreement. There's an expectation. And this might be uh, one thing that the president would postpone until this issue is resolved. Well, the attorney representing Pastor Brunson, um, Ismail Cern Halavert, who filed the request the court rejected, uh, could not immediately be contacted for comment to interpret what this means. But the pastor who is originally from Black Mountain, North Carolina, led the Izmir Resurrection Church in Turkey, where he pastored and again has uh, served there for some 20 years. He was detained in the aftermath of that uh, failed 2016 coup for allegedly supporting outlawed Kurdish rebels and the network led by U.S.-based Muslim cleric uh, Fethullah Gulen. Uh, Turkey blames Gulen for the unrest, but the cleric denies involvement in the coup attempt. He is, as I mentioned, uh, here in the United States, and uh, this Kurdish, um, or rather this uh, Muslim cleric, uh, would uh, they would like to have him returned to Turkey by the United States, and that's part of the grievance that uh, is unstated, but is at the heart of much of this. Now, the next hearing for Pastor Brunson uh, is scheduled for October the 12th, and lest we get too excited about what that might mean, generally hearings can mean very little, and they can go on for as many as uh, several years before there's an actual trial. Uh, Because uh, pressure is escalating and there's much at stake, uh, Turkey might um, expedite this case, but we don't know. Continue to pray for Pastor Brunson, for those who are representing him in the legal system, and for the heart of the king, uh, in this case, um, the president of Turkey, and the uh, judges in this case, uh, for their hearts to be softened toward this pastor so that ultimately he is released and allowed to return home. That's the latest on Pastor Brunson. Also, in a ruling that apparently conflicts with U.S. Supreme Court precedent, a three-judge panel of the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeal, the most overturned court of appeal in the nation, affirmed a ban on anything that might resemble a prayer at board meetings of a South Car- rather, uh, Southern California school district. This requires the board to censor or otherwise remove individuals who attempt to say a prayer or anything that might resemble a prayer during the public comment period, explained Robert Tyler, a legal counsel representing the Chino Valley Unified School District in a case brought by an atheist activist group. No surprise, the Freedom From Religion Foundation. Such an overboard injunction is a clear violation of the right of of private citizens to address their local representatives in public meetings and is dangerous to the First Amendment. Uh, So says the uh, critics of that decision. The Freedom From Religion Foundation sued the district in southwestern San San Bernardino County, which was represented by the Faith and Freedom Foundation and others. The appeals court panel said the order is affirmed from a lower court prevents the creation of a de facto opening invocation during a public comment period, imposing severe restrictions on what the public can say. Well, four years ago, the Supreme Court affirmed, however, the practice of ceremonial prayer at city council meetings in Town of Greece versus Galloway. You might recall that decision. In it, Justice Anthony Kennedy, now uh, soon to be retired, noted the historical significance of such invocations, saying ceremonial prayer is but a recognition that, since this nation was founded and until the present day, many Americans deem that their own existence must be understood by precepts far beyond the authority of government, he wrote. The Ninth Circuit judges, um, M. Margaret McKeon, Kim McLean, Wardlaw, and Wiley Daniel decided the board's invocations were not within the legislative prayer tradition that allows certain types of prayer to open legislative sessions. One factor was that these prayers typically took place before groups of school children whose attendance was not truly voluntary. So these children were exposed to the invocation of, uh, of a sovereign in prayer. Well, the board practice was to randomly select a person to
to give the invocation from a list of local clergy. If that person didn't show up, a board member could solicit a volunteer. But the lawsuit claimed that on several occasions, board members made comments such as God appointed us to be here and a teacher was thanked for placing God before herself. That was too much to be borne by uh, the critics. They also thanked a Christian pastor who gave an opening prayer for serving the Lord Jesus Christ. The district court said the personal expression of faith were forbidden. On appeal, the judges said the prayer practice isn't within the legislative prayer tradition approved by the courts. The Ninth Circuit Court panel said the prayer couldn't be allowed because children are present at the Chino meetings. I'll reserve comment. Uh, The presence of large numbers of children and adolescents in setting under uh, uh, under the control of public school authorities is in, um, I don't know why they would say in consonant, uh, with the legislative prayer tradition. Well, that fact, the opinion said, justifies the content-based restriction on board members. So in order to protect the children from being exposed to the invocation of prayer, uh, it would be eliminated altogether. My guess is if there is an appeal, this will ultimately make its way to the U.S. Supreme Court or the full Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals preceding the U.S. Supreme Court where it will be summarily rejected. We'll follow the story wherever it goes. Um, Taking a look at some of the guests uh, for the uh, program, we're going to talk on Thursday with Linda Evans, Praying God's Promise, The Life-Changing Power of Praying the Scripture. And we're working on a couple of things for Wednesday, so we'll just leave you in the dark where that is concerned. And then on Friday, um, we're uh, working on some things there as well. So that's the lineup for the remainder of the week. I want to thank James ben Blend, James Blend, for engineering and producing today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guest, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.